If you have your Bibles, in just a moment, I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of Matthew. We just had a couple smart board challenges today, so we're going to put it all on the screen overhead, so you're going to get the large print version of my notes today. I don't know about you, I need a large print Bible. I'm glad on my technology that I can move the, the font to, to blind, whatever the blind one is, it can... It can move to the blind, you know, place. But we're back in our series that we're going to be in for a while. And uh, it's our House Hunter series. And by the way, I meant to say that, that as Pastor Brad made that announcement, um, that I will be working with him all through the rest of this year, I'm sure into next year, getting him prepped in numerous ways in order to do his launch. And one of the things I'm going to going to have happen as well is that I'm going to slide him in in recent months. In fact, basically since I've come back, he hasn't had as much opportunity to be able to preach and to teach. And so I, I, I need to make sure we knock all those cobwebs out. So uh, there'll be an occasion to do that. And of course, I want to be here when that happens so I can pull him aside later and say, hey, my brother, I'm going I'm to help you here a little bit. So uh, that's a part of the mentoring process. And, uh, and uh, he's open to that, and I'm glad for that. And, uh, and I feel like that's a part of my call, too, to be able to download into aspiring uh, ministers and pastors. But uh, having said that, we are in this series that we're going to be in a good while, and we've called it House Hunter. And really, it's a study in that big word that nobody really cares about until it really matters, and it matters to God, but it's the word ecclesiology. Ecclesiology you'll see on the screen overhead, is defined simply as the study of the church and church practice and practices. Now, I realize nobody thinks much about that, but we really need to think about that because we're living in an era when there's a lot of things that are just out of order. I remember years ago, this is probably when I was in elementary school, there was a book that came out by a professional football player by the name of Jerry Kramer. Jerry Kramer was an offensive guard for the championship Green Bay Packers. And uh, the Packers in the early 60s were this dominating team. Fuzzy Thurston was on the other side of the center. They had Bart Starr. They had Paul Horning. Some of these names may mean nothing to you, but these are Hall of Fame names of, of a Green Bay Packer team that was absolutely amazing. And Jerry Kramer was on that team. And he came to mind because this past year he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. But in the 60s he wrote a book, a sports book, that he entitled Instant Replay. And basically it chronicled the Green Bay Packers through a championship season starting in spring training. And he used to tell the story in that of how Lombardi, Coach Vince Lombardi, was so tough on them uh, at their spring practices because they would never come in totally prepared the way they needed to be prepared in order to be pro football players. And so they had an especially poor practice one day, and Lombardi was just off the chart. His, the veins were sticking out of his neck. He was red-faced. He brought him into you know, their gathering room, and, and he just started yelling at them concerning their practice. And he said, gentlemen, today is the day we're going back to the basics. And he reached down, and he picked up a football, and he said, this is a football. Almost seems silly to say that to a group of professional football athletes. This is a football. 
And yet Lombardi understood that if a team was going to be of championship caliber, there were going to be occasions that they would have to be looked at and told, we got to go back to some basics here. I realized they'd heard it all. They probably had been playing football since the time they were in Pop Warner. What could you tell a group of professional athletes that they didn't already know? Well, probably things that they knew and they just weren't doing or weren't applying. And so with equal silliness, I suspect, today I want to bring to you a topic that basically says to a group of Christians, I would say, if not everyone, all, every, almost everyone in the room, if you're not, that'd be between you and God. So far as I can see, it looks like everybody would claim the claim of, of Christ in their life. And I'm here to tell you that we are going to say, folks, this is what a church begins to look like. You say, well, I, I know church. I've been going to church for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Well, so have I. But every now and then, we have to go back to the basics. We live in an era that's redefining everything. There's a guy by the name of Karl Barth. He was a German theologian who was concerned about the liberalism of German scholarship in the church and how it was affecting it. And he came up with something that was called neo-orthodoxy. Neo-orthodoxy is basically a fancy term that means new orthodoxy. Now, you remember the word orthodox means that which is right or that which is, is appropriate. Um, if you're an orthodox Christian, it means you're probably, it should be a biblical, uh, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, devil-chasing, I think tongue-talking, you know, all the things. Christian, you're orthodox. Neo-orthodox meant that he wanted to produce a new orthodoxy that would appease the liberals, the higher critics of German scholarship, in order that they might be more easily won into, into the confines of Bible-affirming, Bible-authority Christianity. And in his attempt to do that in neo-orthodoxy, what he did was, is that he began to use words that you and I are familiar with, but he redefined them to mean different things. In other words, you'd still hear the word grace and love. You'd hear the word atonement and uh, resurrection and all kinds of words that we would use in our churches. But what he did was he redefined them in order that it would be e more easily accommodated into their, their liberalism. Can I just say this? So it would be more accommodating into their unbelief. That was neo-orthodoxy. Well, it's interesting about ancient heresy. It always comes around again. Ancient heresy always runs in a circle. You don't know the name of it, but I guarantee you it comes around again and again and again. And we are living in that day of neo-orthodoxy. We have names that we all know very well that are being redefined. We've redefined grace in our era to mean you can live any way you want to and God's going to wink at it. That's, that's what many people define grace to mean. That's not biblical grace. Uh, how about love? We've redefined what love means. Love no longer means sharing with people the truth so they can legitimately be set free. But love means enabling and tolerating whatever they are and by all means don't ever tell them they're wrong. That's how we define love. So we've redefined some things, haven't we? Well, let's go on. We've redefined what marriage looks like in our day and age, haven't we? I mean, you can just about marry anything. Don't be surprised when you'll be marrying animals and 
children, and maybe you'll marry your car one day. You'll be so in love with your car. I mean, who's to judge you for that? How about family? We've redefined family. We've re we, hey, we're redefining gender to where we don't even know if someone's a man or a woman. They could be one of 140 different possible genders. We're redefining everything. So should it be a surprise to us if I looked at you and said we are living in an era where we are redefining church? Do we understand what church is? So today is the day I'm holding it up. And my message I've entitled today is this, what is a church? <laughs> what is a church? Almost sounds like we ought to be back with little fishers. But we need to hear this. What is a church? If you have your Bibles, Matthew 16, I want to begin reading with verse 13. Just a couple passages out of Matthew. You're going to hear the word church in these two passages three times. This is the first time in, New, in a New Testament era that the word church comes to us and it comes out of the mouth of Jesus. How many of you know if Jesus said it, it's in the red, we ought to pay attention. All right, it wasn't Paul that came up with this idea. This was Jesus. He says in Matthew 16, 13, it says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my what? My what? I will build. Didn't say you would build it. Didn't say the future Christians that come along will build it. Jesus said, I will build my church. And if he builds his church, what happens? The gates of Hades or the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Boy, we better let Jesus then build his church, should we not? Chapter 18, leap over quickly, just a couple verses here. And then I want to teach just a couple moments this morning. Matthew 18, 15, we're talking about how to handle offense and sin amongst believers. But we find the word church coming up again. It says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now I realize we don't do any of these passages. So I'll just put that out there. We really don't do this. It's just in there for window dressing. We don't, we don't deal with the person, we tell everybody. You know, we figure we can help everybody. So if he hears you, you have gained your brother. Verse 16, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Verse 17, it says this, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to who? Tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the what? To hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. Wow. Those, that's Jesus. You know, the Jesus that loves you and you can do anything you want. That's what Jesus said. What is a church? What is a church? There are 360,000 churches in America. 360,000. There are millions of churches globally. 
liberal conservative, traditional contemporary, large, small. Churches that meet in homes, they meet in apartments, they meet in schools, they meet at hotels. Churches that meet in industrial parks, malls, theaters, and some of them even own their own facilities. I was reading recently the paper, the newspaper out of Columbia, the state newspaper. They had an article of a church that was meeting in a bar. Church in a bar. In fact, even in the article, you could shoot pool, you could drink coffee, or get you a draft. Is that a church? Or do I simply have a religious spirit when I raise my eyebrows? And that's the manifestation. What's a church? Is that tradition that's just being challenged? Or is there something maybe amiss in that picture? We have churches who dress up, dress down. There have been churches known to not dress at all. Some churches have programs. Some churches have no program. Some churches are online. Some churches aren't even online. They're just totally unplugged. Some have full bands. Some have partial bands. Some have one piano, and some won't let a musical instrument in the door. You're going to sing a cappella there. There are underground churches. There are churches who have hundreds of acres, and their facility looks like a super center. You have churches that meet with two people, and you have churches that have franchised their locations all over the globe. Are they all churches? What qualifies it to be a church? Do we know what a church is? Do we care what a church is? Is everybody doing it right because you can do it any way you want to do it? Is it simply based on our own personal preferences or ideas as to what a church may be? Or are there some things that we maybe need to take a look at so we know what's being produced is actually what Jesus had in mind when he said, I will build my church, and this is the church that hell cannot not only beat up, but you will actually be able to go over the gates that hell establishes to try to keep you out. America is the wild, wild west of religious options. We are the entrepreneurial free market zone for church life. 5,000 church plants take place every year. Now, those are intentional church plants. I was, I was a part of an unintentional church plant some years ago. That doesn't count those. 5,000 intentional church plants. Interesting, there are 10,000, I mentioned last week, church closures. So what's going on? What's staying? What's going is it the church that's closing? Is it, is it the church that's growing and going? I mean, I mean, what is all of this about? I was reading another article. I'm, just, I'm taking my time through this because I want you to begin to think with me. The Post and Courier here locally uh, actually had two articles on church life. It's interesting how secular papers are wanting to research this church area. In fact, they said that churches are closing in South Carolina at a record rate. I thought that interesting here in the midst of the Bible Belt. And then they mentioned of a new church because they were asking the question, what must churches do? What must churches do? What must churches do to stay alive? Well, that, that's, that's just an interesting question right there. There's a new church apparently in a theater, which I don't know that there's any problem with a the theater, except that 
At this church, the attenders can get into the new reclining seats and recline as they sing and as they listen to all that's going on. Now, who wouldn't enjoy that? Wouldn't it be great right now for you to have a recliner that you could just kick back and listen to Pastor Baird? Maybe that's the, we ought to raise money for recliners is what we ought to do in church life. Because surely that would attract people to the church if we gave them recliners. Well, how about we just ask the airline industry what they do in first class because those things will even go down into bed. So maybe you could just go straight down into the bed and, and listen that way. You could, you could just you could absorb his presence and absorb the word. Do we know what a church is? Do we care? Is there a real definition? Or have we redefined some things? How do we even know? How do we know that church isn't a walk through nature? I've heard people say, well, you know what my church is? My church is I just get up and I take a walk on Sunday mornings and I walk through a park or I walk through the nature and I just look at the goodness of God all around me and that's my church. How do we know that church isn't a day on the lake looking at God's creation, enjoying the sunshine, magnifying the creator, enjoying what he's given? How, how about that? Maybe that's a church. Maybe, maybe church is just meditating on a hammock somewhere. I don't know. Have you ever thought about it? What is church? Or have we, just, have we just generated what we think church ought to be? In fact, I've even heard this. I hear this all the time. We don't have to go to church. You just be the church. Well, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Because even to challenge it makes you feel like, do I have a religious spirit? Maybe, maybe I, I'm just this old traditional goat that just doesn't get it. I'm not up to speed. I'm old school. That's the word. You're, you got to be new school, not old school. So maybe if all of these people are right, maybe we ought to just close all our buildings. Maybe we ought to just let some organic thing happen. Maybe it's all just too much work anyway. But, but in all of that scenario that I've just painted to you, here's what I do know. We better get this thing right because Jesus is highly invested in it. And if we don't get this right, it's not just we don't get our preference or we don't get what we want, but we're actually disturbing, aggravating, maybe in rebellion to the very God of the universe. Now, the texts that I read to you are the first mentions of the word church. Now, there's all sorts of types and shadows in the Old Testament. And as we move through this series, I'm going to go to the Old Testament on occasion and begin to share with you uh, these types and these shadows of the church. There's lots of them. Now, as we continue forward, you get to the book of Acts, and you're going to see in the book of Acts the blossoming uh, from Luke, uh, as he writes it under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he begins to write these things down as to what the church really is. Now, the word church, interesting, is found 70 times in the Old Testament Septuagint. Now, I, that, the Septuagint is a Greek interpretation of a Hebrew Old Testament. Now, there is no word for church in the Hebrew, specifically. But the reason the Septuagint is important, because in 300 B.C., now we're talking B.C., 
there were a group of Greek-speaking Jews who wanted to get the Scripture out to Greek-speaking Jewish people, and so they translated the Hebrew into the Greek. And when they translated it into the Greek, they translated certain words with the same word that will eventually be used in the New Testament that we translate church. That is found 70 times. So hear me when I say this. Jewish people in 300 B.C. were using the word church to understand some concepts in the Old Testament. Now you get to the New Testament, you'll see the word church 115 times. It's the word we call ecclesia. That's how it's technically pronounced, ecclesia or ecclesia. Some people use it like this, ecclesia. I always say ecclesia. It actually means called out ones. It comes from two Greek words that were put together, if you follow the etymology that far. Ek meaning out, ecclesia, coming from the Greek word kaleo, which means to call forth. So it is the called out ones or the called forth ones. That's what the word literally means. Now it's interesting because if you begin to understand it, how it's derived out of the Hebrew, and if you follow it beyond just the construction of the word, you'll begin to see in its etymology that there's something a little deeper to it than just called out ones. It literally has a sense of summoning. In other words, it's, 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 it's a group of people that have been summoned, that have been called forth, and they've been called forth to either listen or to act for God. In the Old Testament, the people would assemble at the door of the tabernacle to begin to hear God speak. God has always had this place where, where he wants to speak to his people when they are together. You say, well, pastor, God speaks to me all the time by myself, especially when I'm walking in the forest. Well, I'm, I'm glad. But there are ways he speaks to us that he only speaks to us when we're together. And though he may speak to you that way, and we believe and we would teach that God will speak to you individually, if you're not hearing how God speaks to us corporately, then you are missing perhaps an even greater portion of what God may be saying into your life. Now, the fact of the matter is, However we want to translate Ecclesia, some versions will translate it the gathering, some will translate it the assembly, some will translate it the congregation. Most often it's translated the church. And I often say to myself, well, you know, we have this modern image of what the church may look like, but what did it mean back in the day that it was used? In fact, if Jesus was using this word, can you agree with me that he's using it for a purpose? He, he, he had a number of word choices that he could have used in that day in order to talk about gathering. But he chooses the word ecclesia. So what did he mean by it? Why did he redeem it? What was he saying in all of this? Well, let's first start by sharing with you what it does not mean. All right, let's, let's knock out what it doesn't mean first. The church is not, number one, a building. Now, I know a lot of churches have to meet somewhere. There's nothing wrong with meeting, and there's nothing wrong with meeting in a building. But the church in and of itself is not a building. So, in other words, when, when, when people are asking for directions and you say, you know that church that's on the corner down the street there? Take a right at the church at the corner. Now, I understand that's how we give directions, and that's we're signifying it's where they meet. But a lot of people in their mind be, have begun to sort of make it analogous that church is some building or some auditorium. 
In other words, this, we meet in this building, but the building in and of itself is not the church. Secondly, it's not an attendance number. I'm going to keep saying this again over and over. Church can be as small as two people. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, Jesus said, there I'll be. But there has to be a gathering. In other words, there's at least two. You can't, you can't have a church of one. That's not gathering. And gathering probably goes beyond just one's nuclear family as well. There, there has to be two. And the largest church, as we understand it, at this particular time is in Seoul, Korea, that has 850,000 people. Now, that's a church, isn't it? It's a lot of people. So a church is not about just number size. It can be small. It can be medium. It can, it can be large. In fact, uh, it was interesting as I was reading some things in the Old Testament, the synagogue, and as it translated into the New Testament, the synagogue of the Jews was never allowed to get over 250 people. The synagogue got to 250 people. That was the moment that they'd say, we have to create another synagogue in order to facilitate the worship that the Jews had. I thought that was fascinating, that they wouldn't let it go any, any further than that. That's why there's no synagogues that are... These, you know, it's not a mega synagogue. You don't have that. You don't have conferences. How to grow your synagogue to 10,000 in five easy steps. It's just not, because that's not the mindset. They say this is, this is as large as it's ever going to get. I found that fascinating. The church is not a religious system. It is not an organization. In other words, I put down here, like a denomination. You aren't really a church unless you're part of a denomination. Denominations gather usually on the basis of the type of church government. They'll gather upon that basis. They will gather upon the basis of a distinctive doctrine that we, we believe this distinctive doctrine. Or thirdly, they'll gather on the basis of some shared experience. And denominations come out of that. Now, it's fine to gather, and it's fine for churches to have networks, I think. But the religious system of it or even the organization of it, is not what the church is. Now, God's not in anarchy either. How many of you know that God, uh, through Paul, had something to say at Corinth because that was anarchy? And he said, we're going to put some things in order here. There's going to be some organization to this. So God's not against organization, but we cannot confuse that with the church. The church is not plan B. Uh, the, I, I consider it to be a dispensational heresy. Most dispensationalists believe that the church is sort of God's plan B to what he really wanted to do through the Jews, and we just exist as, as a Gentile sort of entity until we're finally taken out of here, and then God can really deal with the Jews. But that's not true. That, that the church is integral. You read Paul's epistles, and the church is, it has an integral place in the heart and the mind, and Jesus was talking about building it long before anything happened by way of transition away from the Jews. So the church is not plan B, nor is the church to be confused with the kingdom of God. The church is a part of the kingdom of God because the Lord should rule in the midst of his people. So we believe that the kingdom exists as we gather together as the church, but we are not the kingdom. We are conduiting the kingdom. We are a part of the expression of the kingdom, but we in and of ourselves are not singularly the kingdom of God. And, and unfortunately, some of our Catholic friends have got another doctrine wrong on this because they believe that the, the, the Roman Catholic Church is indeed the expression of the kingdom on the earth. And so there's some difficulty there 
as well. So I just wanted to go through some things that the church wasn't. But let's begin to talk about what the church is in God's mind. Now, as I begin to share some things here, I, I want to say this, that, that all of this is going to get explored in even greater ways. So even as I move through this quickly, I'm putting concepts out that I want you to begin to get a hold of, to begin to think about, to begin to meditate on, to let the Spirit of God kind of work some things in you personally, in your life as well as corporate life. Uh, because I believe the church is where the action is going to be. There's going to be yet a great revival that's going to happen on the earth. I believe that God's going to use his church in an amazing way. We're not going out of here with our tail between our legs, beat up, bruised, you know, sin-laden. But I believe that there's a victorious church, that God is coming for a prevailing people, that the Lord will come and, and there will be a victory that exists within the people of God that he'll be able to say, there's no sense that you guys even stay in that anymore. Come be with me. I believe that. I, I, I believe in an optimistic, victorious future for the church. You say, haven't you read Paul? He said some things were going to wax worse and worse. Yes, there will always be apostasy. There will always be falling away. There will always be seasons. But hear me when I say this. America is in a season in church life, but that doesn't mean the rest of the globe is in the same season. I'm here to tell you, in China and in Russia and in Africa and in some other places like the Middle East, they're baptizing real converts by the untold thousands. You talk about church. Church is going on, man. Something we wouldn't even receive in our country. You couldn't import what they're doing in other nations because as Americans, we, we'd poo-poo on it. And yet, the Holy Ghost is moving in some amazing ways. In America... We got some issues. And so we've got to get ourselves on target one more time. So let's talk about what the church is. And I want to begin by talking about what I said, the concept and even the context of ecclesia as a word. All right, the concept of ecclesia. Ecclesia was a word that was used in Jesus' day uh, ostensibly by the civic arena. Um. Now, whenever I talk about the civic arena, everybody begins to think about politics. And when you talk about ecclesia or ecclesia, and you understand that it was derived or it was hijacked or it was inspired. Oh, I tell you how we put it. It was redeemed by Jesus out of the civic arena for some important points. There's some important analogies here. There's some types that we need to communicate. When Jesus said for the first time the word ecclesia to the disciples, the disciples would have understood that that word had a meaning of something beyond what was going on there at the moment. The disciples would have understood that it meant a gathering. Um, God's people, by the way, have always been commanded by the Lord to gather. I'm going to let that hang there for just a minute. God has always commanded his people to gather. Why, why would he have created a tabernacle? Why would he have created a temple? Why would he have created a, a synagogue? Why would, why, why, why? You look at the whole Bible is about the gathering. Only in America have we so personalized the gospel that it's no longer just personal, it's become individualized. 
so individualized that it can just be me and Jesus and I don't need anybody else, nor do I want anybody else. That is a unique Americanized heresy. God has always commanded his people to gather. If you don't want to gather, then you automatically put into suspicion the nature of your heart. I don't know any other way to say it. I'm just going to go for it. The heart that's been born again, that's been transferred, there's something in it that wants to gather. If for no other reason than to obey God. Gathering is a part of of the demonstration of who we are as the people of God. In other words, I want to gather. I want to be in a place where God's people are gathering. And so the disciples would have understood that ecclesia is a gathering. It's a gathering of those who are called out. In the book of Acts, it's interesting to me, as you'll begin to read the book of Acts, one of the early features after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts was that the disciples would begin to gather. People would begin to gather. Did they not? They gathered in an upper room. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They're beginning to gather with all these thousands of people. Here's what's interesting. They weren't just gathering under Solomon's portico as the church, but they were still gathering at the temple in the early days. They were gathering all the time. And then what did they do? They met from house to house. They gather. And there were things they did in this gathering that was taking place. But you go all through the book of Acts, they were gathering all the time. Only in America, we don't have to gather. Now all I have to do is turn on my computer and I can watch the best preachers in America, just me and them. I'm not even gathering anymore. See, there's something beyond just hearing inspiring preaching. Whether you think I'm inspiring or not, it doesn't even matter. I may not be. Maybe the gas is out of my tank and it's just not like it used to be. Although my wife said something about gas in me last night. I just, I just, I'll leave that alone. You look like you needed to laugh for just a moment. He went there. Yes, he did. But hear me when I say this. I'm just telling you that, that there's, something, there's, there's something about gathering that's beyond. I just get to be a part of this movement. I mean, it's, I'm not, there's, it's, It's so individualized. We don't get that when I'm coming, it's not for me. I'm coming because I have a portion of the gathering. See, we think we come because it's about me. Yeah, I'll be there, but it's got to be about me. You know, sometimes you're here because someone just needed to see your smile and hear your voice and, and someone say to them, I love you, and I hadn't seen you for a while. Sure, good to see you again. Sometimes that's what you need, and sometimes that's what you need to give. And if you're not here, it can't be given. Because you think it's all about you. Well, I'll be at church today. We'll see if pastor brings it today. If he doesn't bring it, he probably won't see me in another month. Well, you know, that's not what this is about. Gathering. The sacredness. Pastor Brad began to talk about the sacredness of some things. We have lost the sacredness of gathering. It's not sacred anymore. It's what, just what we do. It's a box I check off. The gathering. God, make it sacred to me again, the gathering. Now, there were things about the ecclesia that we can derive because of its use in the civic arena. And so there are eight things, and and the first one's going to be just, it's it's a little longer, and then the next seven I'm going to go real fast. Okay, so don't, don't freak out that I'm getting close to noon. There are eight important ecclesia concepts. The first one is this. The church is 
an elected, called-out group. Now, election is a biblical term, unfortunately, that carries a lot of baggage. It means, in its most general usage, those who are saved or those who are called by God to himself. Now, no matter what you think about predestination and sovereignty and election, the fact of the matter is election is in the Bible, and election, however we want to define it, means those who have been uh, called out or those who have been brought to God for his purposes. So it doesn't matter what you believe about sovereignty. I can tell you that, that election, that's what election means. So in the civil arena, ecclesia meant that there was a gathering of these duly appointed people, and these duly appointed people would come to address the issues of their jurisdiction. Now that's a fancy way of saying this. Ecclesia was like the town council, or the city council. Or the ecclesia was like the state legislature. Or, or like the Senate in Washington, D.C. It was a gathering of those now, when I use the term elected now, we would think in terms of, well, we voted for them. But, but the vote only indicated how they were appointed. You know, in, in other times and other ways, they were appointed to that position, so to speak, by other means than people voting in a democratic fashion. It was simply a gathering of those who were called forth or called out, they were elected in the sense that somehow they were appointed or pointed to be there. They were brought out in order to address the affairs of their jurisdiction. The church, just out of that aspect, the first aspect of eight, is this. You and I have been called out called forth, appointed, elected, drawn, however you want to put it. God has called out his church in order that together we might address the issues of our jurisdiction. Some of that most specifically is the city. But this whole globe, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. And that's why there's a global church. Because we're here to to begin to address issues, and we'll talk about how, and that's with kingdom power. But hear me when I say this, not everybody is a part of the church. This is the part that, that's going to rock you now. Not everybody is a part of the church. We think of church as something we come to and attend, like a worship service. It is a part of that. But not everybody who attends necessarily belongs to the church. You're only belonging unless you're duly appointed. And this is where we begin to compartmentalize some things. You see, we understand that not everybody's on the city council. Not everybody is in the legislature. Not everybody, but just those that were appointed. But we create, see, this is another form of, and I'm using big words, but we have, we have created an egalitarianism, which means we've made everybody equal in the sense of that we are creating a church that fixes our 21st century inability to reach people. We don't want to reach people personally anymore. We want, we want our church program to reach people. And so we want to create something inside the organization that begins to draw in the world until finally I hear this being taught uh, out there by all sorts of people. This is widely taught and disseminated. It says this, 
about church, and I'm reading here. People need to belong, then they'll believe, and then they'll behave. I've heard that more times than I can count. Belong, believe, behave. In other words, we want to get them in the church, and while they're in the church, somehow or another we're going to believe that they're going to believe, and then, of course, the fruits of that belief will begin to be lived out. Come on, just follow me. In other words, unsaved people. We want to bring unsaved people to church. Why? Because we don't have any intention of winning them out there. None. Zero. Zip. That's why you bring them to church. It's our culture. We're still living in a culture that says, yeah, if I can get them there. And listen, we want everybody, you can bring all your friends to church, but hear me, church in its right definition is not for them. Because what we do is when we create it, in fact, I heard a pastor teach this one time. He said, I no longer want a church for the saints. I want a church for the sinner. I want a church for the lost. I want a church for the seeking. Well, that sounds real good, doesn't it? It sounds real outreachy and evangelistic. And, and it's hard to throw any kind of rock or stone at it. But hear me what I'm saying. What we do is, is then in the church, we begin to diminish or reduce what it is that we're wanting to do because we don't want to alienate them. We don't want to drive them off. We don't want to confuse them. So we quit using biblical terms like atonement and covenant and sanctification because they don't know anything about that and we don't want to run them off. So we're going to just move their emotions. We're just going to inspire them. We're just going to make them excited. Hey, let's let it be a stand-up comedy hour so we can kind of do our shtick because they're going to really want to belong if they got this and we have lost the truth that this gathering isn't about them it's about him and when we reach out to him it draws them we think we're helping God we know you need help God you just if you just let leave it to us we can handle your public relations because you've been getting a bad rap. Everybody thinks, you know, you're just, you're just this holy, overly expecting God who has expectations on us. And we just think, if you'll leave it to us, we can make this work. We don't want people to know that they really have to change the way they live. We'll just kind of get them to you like they are. And, and again, I'm not saying we clean them up in order to get I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, is that we have morphed church into something it was never meant to be we think church now is for the world we're we're more concerned with how the world sees us rather than how god sees us we think it's for the world that's why we say things like don't go to church be the church what are you talking about it's not bible because the lord says the church gathers so you're going to be going somewhere We cannot confuse what our mission is with the gathering. Our gathering is not the mission. Our gathering is what we do to worship our God, to hear from God, and to be able to go out of this place and do the mission. And this is the part of the church's problem. We think the mission is getting people to church. The mission isn't just getting people to church, although they do need to gather. But they'll never want to gather if they're not born again. Not for long. Or you're going to have to keep doing, come see what I danced today. Isn't that funny? I had a new joke today. Let me tell you this new joke. And they all walk out and go, wasn't that pastor funny? When they should have been saying, wasn't God in that place? 
That's just point one that you derive out of ecclesia. We love people. If you have a friend that doesn't know Jesus, can I bring him to church? Well, sure, bring him to church. But I'm not here. I've had people through the years come up to me and say, hey, pastor, be sure you do an altar call today because I brought somebody with me and they need Jesus, so do an altar call today. It's not for them. I know this, is, this, this will rock people's world. I know of one sweet lady that I did an invitation, and this has been within the last year or so. I did an invitation because I felt led to do an invitation, which, by the way, altar calls weren't even established until about maybe the mid-19th century, which meant there were like 1,800-plus years of no altar call, and the church did quite well. But I did an invitation, and then an outward I was visiting with people. She came up to me, I was so glad you did an invitation today because I thought you were going backwards. No, it's just not for them. We're not doing our gathering for them. This is for him. God called us to gather for him. I, it's rocking our world because we've been told we've got to reach the world, we've got to reach the world. Yes, we've got to reach the world, but reaching the world isn't bringing them to church. Reaching the world is receiving from God something that makes you go from this place to do what the apostles did when they said, we could not help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Would you like to receive Jesus? And they say yes, and that you in simplicity, you don't have to be a pastor to do this, lead them to the Lord. And when they are led to the Lord, you can look at them and say, now as a Christian, you'll want to gather. You'll need to find a place to gather. I know a good gathering place. But if you don't choose this gathering place, you still got to find a gathering place. The church. Are you hearing me? That's our problem. Our problem is in pastoring, you aren't creating enough evangelism programs. Listen, if I create another evangelism program, my wife and I and three of you will come to it. Can we just admit that isn't that working? It isn't my job. My job, my job isn't to go make a church grow. My job isn't even to go win the lost as a pastor. I do that as a believer. That's the part of the church we got to get back into order. It's that you're on assignment. Your assignment isn't just to get to church. Your assignment is to be at church in order to worship God, receive from God, and then go do the mission because your life is not your own. But not in America. My life is not only my own, but it better, it better be all about me. I told you, man, I was going to drop the bomb on this, and we're only... Okay, I got to move. Now I do have to move quickly. Number two is this. I'm going to move quickly. Ecclesia meant that there was an identifiable or locatable gathering. In other words, you, you could see the church gathered. There's a confusion that we'll get to that exists between the universal church and the local church. I'm going to say this over and over again. Yes, there is a universal church of which all believers are a part of. But the universal church is only demonstrated in your life by you participating in a local church. Because every spiritual concept incarnates itself. God showed us that by incarnating himself. God is spirit, right? But yet God incarnated himself in flesh in the form of Jesus in order to demonstrate spiritual reality by enfleshing it before our very eyes. It's the same with the church. Every, every spiritual principle 
healing. We're all going to be healed in heaven. Praise God. But isn't it good to know that that can manifest in reality here and now? Isn't it cool that, yes, there's a universal church, but that universal church is only demonstrated when you and I are connected to a local gathering. Otherwise, it's all theory. You're a Christian on paper, not in reality. It incarnates itself. So when I participate in a local church, I'm demonstrating that I'm a part of the universal church because that's the only way anybody's going to see the universal church is people through the local church. That's the only way it's going to happen. You sitting in front of your computer or television set or walking through nature or your day at the lake, I'm not saying God's not there. God's everywhere. And could you commune with the Lord? Yes, but do not tell yourself that's church. Oh, that one's going to be a good one I'm going to come back to. Number three, there, there were regular gathering times. In other words, the ecclesia, the civic ecclesia, had regular times of gathering. So does the local church. Just as a legislator, legislature has convening times, the church has convening times. We convene the first day of every week at a minimum. It's not sporadic. It's not haphazard. It's consistent. That's what the Lord says. We convene. Number four, our adherence to a mission. I'm moving quickly. We represent, we demonstrate, and we mobilize for the cause of the kingdom. We come as the church to worship God, to hear from him, and then we adhere to a mission that we go mobilize in order to accomplish that. The mobilization is what? Bringing the kingdom, declaring the kingdom, demonstrating the kingdom. And it doesn't have to be, everybody doesn't have to be Benny Hinn and throw your coat at somebody. I mean, you can go to work and someone says, man, I've, I've got pains, I've got hurts. And you can look at someone and, and just say, hey, I can put you on my prayer list if you want. And I'll pray for you and I'll, I'll believe that this will be, be addressed. And, and you can do things that aren't utterly, you know, spooky or crazy and, and still be used by God to demonstrate the kingdom. I'm glad for dramatic, crazy things. I mean, I want to see God do some crazy stuff. That's great when that happens. But that doesn't mean we have to do that out there. You can just, you can just be an on-target, sensitized Christian to needs around you, and you'd be amazed how often you'd get to pray with people. I mean, my wife goes to her job, and I mean, she's like on kingdom assignment. I'm really proud of her that she's doing this. I mean, I mean and it's made a difference in people's lives. Number five is we have an authority to act. Does not the town council have an authority to act? We do too. How do we act? Well, in a number of ways. We act through the preaching. We act through teaching. We act through the ministry. We act or have authority to act through ordinances. We're going to get back to this in the book of Acts as we begin to see all those first acts of the apostles or acts of the Holy Spirit. There was an authority to act. Number six, there was structure. I want to say this quickly. Institution is not a bad word. How many of you know there's an institution of marriage and God's for it? Now, now God's not for our organization overshadowing his Holy Spirit. And God's not, though, at the same time, for anarchy. That was Corinth. Jesus organized his twelve. He sent them out two by two. There was some organization to that. He had three that were a little bit closer to him. When they had the feeding of the 5,000, he told the disciples to set them up into specific groups. There was some organization to this. We know he had a treasurer. 
There was organization in the book of Acts, was there not? We know that there were pastors and elders and deacons that were selected, so there was some organization. So organization isn't bad. There's some organization to church. There's nothing wrong with organization. It's when the organization gets in the way with what God may be wanting to do. There's structure to it. Everybody doesn't go to Columbia to the state house, and everybody shouts at the same time wanting to get their agenda done. That's why Paul looked at Corinth and said, you may all prophesy, or you may all speak in tongues, two or three, and then let them interpret, and then you may all prophesy one by one. Are you, that's called structure. So there is structure within the life of the church and the ecclesia. Number seven is protocol. I'm hurrying now. Seven, protocol, or what I call honor. Honor has more to do with the declaration of affection or worship. You know, when you go, you should. It used to be you, you do this in classrooms across America. You do this at county council meetings and the opening of civic ceremonies. Remember what we'd all do? We'd all stand, face the flag, put our hand over our heart and begin to say the declaration. Uh, I'm sorry, the Pledge of Allegiance. And then we might sing uh, America the Beautiful or My Country Tis of Thee or something. And we do that. There was a protocol, an honor that took place. There's an honor in the church. There's an honor to the Lord. There's an honor to what we do. There's flippancy went away. This was an honor. What we do when we gather is we put our hands to our heart and we're pledging allegiance to the only one that really deserves our full allegiance. We pledge our allegiance. I love my country, but my allegiance ultimately is to you. And then finally, number eight, there's this commonly held policy or what we call commonly held belief. And, of course, in a civic arena, we might look to a constitution or something like that. But in the church, the gathering, what did they do? What was the first thing they did when they gathered in the book of Acts? They sat down, they had a meal, they fellowshiped, they received communion, and then they were taught the apostles' doctrine. They began to be taught what would be their commonly held beliefs. Now, we know in the scripture there are a lot of things we can differ on, and, and some of that's okay. For instance, we may have different views of the second coming. Now, we all should believe, and I believe it's an essential, that we believe Jesus is coming again. That's an essential. But how that looks or the schematic, well, we may differ on a little bit here and there. That's a non-essential. But there are some essentials that are rock-bottom solid. You cannot let these go. And these are our commonly held beliefs. We believe Jesus was fully God and fully man, and we can't let that one go. We cannot let it go that this book is my authority. It is inerrant. It speaks the heart and the mind of God. And anyone that undermines it, that's, it's gone. It's, this is my authority. That is an essential. Otherwise, it's just it's haphazard. It's anything goes. It's whatever we believe this week. Whatever I feel, it's an essential. It's an essential that man is born lost. It's an essential that you must be born again. It's an essential. These things, now there aren't 5,000 essentials. But I can guarantee you there's probably somewhere between 7 and 12 essentials. And you can go to some church websites and they don't have any essentials anymore. There is no essential. We'll just, you just come belong. We'll figure that out later. Well, what are you belonging to? I mean, I mean, it's just, I'm fine, I finally went tilt. And I just decided everyone else can go tilt. I'm getting myself back right. 
What is a church? That's the beginning. I'm just starting. We haven't even talked about, we're going to get into the book of Acts, and we're going to get into culture and preference and continuity, because you have a church in Jerusalem, you have a church at Antioch, and they were both really looked different. They looked different, but their essentials were the same. They were still a church by definition, even though they looked a little different. How many of you know we don't look like Presbyterians? Do we? No. But some, I know some really good Presbyterians, really solid people. We don't, we don't look exactly like what they do. So maybe what they do, is that what we should do? I'm, we'll get there. We, we, we aren't going to look, we aren't going to look like a, well, you know, we have some really good warm-hearted Episcopalians in our area. Anglican, sorry, they've changed their name to Anglican now. But I don't do the Anglican thing. I don't have the mitre and the robe and, and we don't close off the table. I mean, there's some things we do differently. Does that mean they aren't a church? Or maybe we aren't a church. Does that No, 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 no. No, church, church has some elbow room. There's some elbow room here. But the essentials between my Anglican brother and me on paper, doctrinally, there may not be one scintilla of difference. It's essential. But culture and other things may play into it. And that's what we're going to talk about. Because right now, most of us choose church on the basis of culture and not essential. As long as they got hot songs going on, the band sounds good, and the preacher's young, and he's been to the gym. Boy, that's a good church. Listen, hear me. I'm just telling you what it is. As long as they've got injection plastic equipment, nothing wrong. And Hey, listen, I'm glad the preacher's going to the gym. He'll probably live longer than I will. So I'm, I, I'm not against... I'm not against you not wearing a tie. It doesn't bother me. I just, I just decided I, I had too many suits in my closet to not wear them anymore. So I just started wearing them. I don't care if you wear a tie or you don't wear a tie. I, just, I do want you to wear clothes. <laughs> Hear me <laughs> when I say this. But that's how most of us gauge things. Was it good worship? Now again, we bring excellence. We, we, there, there's a culture to this. There's going to be a reflection of that culture. I'm, I, I'm starting to get into it. I can't get into it. But the fact of the matter is, we've got to recapture some of these things. I want to be the church, the glorious church. And I'm glad we're gathering here together. Stand with me, shall we? And I'll pray.